Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we kicked off the civil war that was to plague medieval Norway for over a century. We saw a way too long line of pretenders, each with a nickname more ridiculous than the next, fighting each other for the Norwegian throne. After a while, two opposing sides developed. As soon as the pretender representing one of the sides became king, the other side would rally behind a counterclaimant. If there was no other obvious candidate for the job, they would rummage around in the royal family tree until they found someone they could unite around in order to continue the war, to safeguard their own power and position, by default threatened by the fact that the other side was now in power. We ended last time with the death of Håkon the Broad-Shouldered and the conundrum of Erling Skakke, Inge the Hunchback's former advisor. Whom should he promote as king of Norway, and how was he to pay the Danish king for his support without sparking a rebellion against his rule? Episode 38 Birkebeiner and Bagler. In the end, Erling Skakke's solution to the question of succession was easy. He put forward his own son, Magnus Erlingsson, as the candidate for the Norwegian throne. It was true that the boy wasn't the son of a king, but his mother was the daughter of Sigurd the Crusader, so Magnus did have some royal blood, even though it came from the female line of his family tree. The claim was weak, but Erling Skakke was in a strong position. His army had triumphed over King Håkon the Broad-Shouldered, and there was no other obvious pretender around. So Magnus Erlingsson was elected king of Norway. So far so good. But Erling Skakke wasn't a fool. He knew full well that a king could be toppled very easily. He needed to strengthen Magnus's legitimacy, and he decided to do so by having the church confer its blessing on the king in a coronation. This was the first such ceremony to take place in Scandinavia, as we've already discussed in a previous episode. Erling Skakke also pushed through a critical change in the law of succession. Norway would go from being an elective to a hereditary monarchy, From now on, not all sons of kings could claim the right to be kings. According to the new law, only the king's eldest surviving son within wedlock had the right to inherit the throne. None of his younger brothers, or any brothers born to various women who weren't married to the king, would have any claim to the throne. Daughters still needn't apply whoever their father was. Erling Skakke hoped that this would put an end to the civil war and keep his own family on the throne forever. The church was happy to go along with these changes, since this also strengthened its position. It was now clear that the church held the ultimate power to confirm someone as the legitimate king through a coronation. The people, as represented in the thing, no longer had any say in the matter. Along the way, Erling Skakke was made Jarl and regent for his son Magnus, who was only five years old at the time. As eager as he'd been to institute these new changes to strengthen the legitimacy of Magnus' reign, Erling Skakke wasn't planning on relying on legitimacy and church approval alone in order to remain on the top spot. Erling knew from personal experience how easy it was to topple a king, and it had been some 40 years since the last time a Norwegian king had died from natural causes while still holding on to power. The new regent soon turned out to be a harsh ruler, doing everything he had to, and then some, to make sure that his son remained on the throne. Erling Skakke was quick to kill critics, and perceived critics, hoping to nip any and all uprisings in the bud. 
He even had King Magnus's half-brother executed in the year 1170. The unfortunate son of Erling's wife from a previous marriage hadn't been involved in any plotting against Magnus, but his claim to the throne was better than Magnus's. So Erling Skakke decided that the boy had to die, just in case he'd get any ideas when he grew up. A potential insurrection wasn't Erling Skakke's only worry. Now when things had calmed down in Norway, the king of Denmark sent him a reminder that he still had not been given the Oslofjord region as he had been promised. Obviously, Erling Skakke didn't really have any intention of handing over such a rich and strategically vital area to the king of another country, so he brushed off the Danish reminder. But if he thought the Danes would leave it at that, he was mistaken. Soon afterward, a group of Danes showed up in Trondheim under the disguise of being pilgrims on the way to the tomb of St. Olav in the Nidaros Cathedral. When they arrived in Trondheim, they started to visit local noblemen, trying to stir up a rebellion against King Magnus and his father Erling Skakke. And their proposals did not fall on deaf ears. The rich and important Trondelag, the region around Trondheim, had been on the side of Erling Skakke's opponents for many years, and the regent and his son, the king, had few friends there. The local noblemen were eager to rid themselves of this new royal dynasty, and sent a letter back with the Danish agents, pledging their will to rise up against Erling Skakke and his son King Magnus, if the King of Denmark would assist them. Soon after the Danes had departed, Erling Skakke showed up unexpectedly in Trendelag. He wasn't in a particularly good mood, and worse yet, he had an army with him. The regent called a thing where he revealed that he knew about a plan among the local noblemen to initiate a rebellion against their legitimate king, crowned by the church and thus approved by God himself. As evidence of this plan, that amounted to both treason and heresy, Erling Skakke produced a letter the local nobles had sent to the king of Denmark and brought out the agents who had been going around gathering support for a rebellion. Then it dawned upon the crestfallen Trendelag nobles that they had all been tricked. The Danish agents hadn't been sent by the King of Denmark at all. They had been spies sent by Erling Skakke to test their loyalty to the crown. And they had failed the test, practically signing their own death warrants. The spies stood up at the thing, pointing out the Trendelag noblemen who were involved and witnessed about what they had said against Erling Skakke and King Magnus, of course. Now Erling Skakke knew their true colors and they would pay. He had many of them executed and seized property belonging to several more. He was no doubt very pleased with his sneaky move that had pacified one of the most influential regions in the kingdom and a potential hotbed for unrest. But that didn't mean that the problem with the Danish king wasn't real. He was still intent on claiming his prize. A Danish naval force showed up and raided in the Oslo Fjord, to which the regent responded by raiding in Denmark. But Erling Skakke realized that attacking Denmark wasn't going to be a long-term solution. The Norwegians couldn't hope to win an outright war against Denmark, and a prolonged conflict with the Danes would, was not in Erling Skakke's interest. It could only destabilize his reign. Sorry, his son's reign, obviously. So in order to find a permanent settlement, he went to Denmark personally. He just showed up unannounced one day as the king of Denmark was sitting in his hall. He asked to negotiate with the king and to have safe conduct, both in Denmark and on the way home afterwards. You have to hand it to Erling Skakke. That was a pretty bold move. The Danish king could have refused his request and arrested the Norwegian then and there. But he didn't. Instead, he agreed to negotiate with the Norwegian regent. 
Erling Skakke's suggested solution was that the Danish king make Erling a Danish Jarl. Now that may seem like not only a bold move, but even a brazen demand, considering the circumstances. But Erling Skakke explained that if he was made a Danish Jarl over the Oslofjord region, that area would technically fall under the suzerainty of the Danish king without having to be ceded to Denmark. To Erling's enormous relief, the Danish king agreed. Erling had not only managed to collect yet another prestigious noble title, but also disarmed a grave threat to the country and his dynasty. All was well in Norway after that for a few years. Or if not well, then at least peaceful. Erling Skakke kept the country in an iron grip, and King Magnus lived his best life without really interfering in government business. But in the margins of society, opposition was forming into resistance. In the year 1174, this resistance came together to support yet another pretender to the throne. This time, the candidate to replace the current king was a guy called Eystein, who was the son of the last king called Eystein, so his full name was actually Eystein Eysteinsson. But his name isn't particularly important, because his candidacy was never crowned with success. More important is the name given to the people who backed him. They became known as Birkebeiner, which approximately translates to birch legs or birch shoes, and is a reference to the fact that they were mostly poor and couldn't afford proper leather shoes. Hardly surprising, the name was first coined as a slur by their opponents, but the Birkebeiner would eventually adopt it and use it when referring to themselves. Even though it's true that many of those who joined the Birkebeiner were poor and landless, some even driven to theft and robbery in order to survive, the leadership was not. They were mostly well-off people from the Trendelag region who resented Erling Skakke's attempt to shift the balance of power away from their region, traditionally one of, if not the most important regions in Norway, the up-and-coming regions favoured by the regent and his son were southeast Norway around the Oslo Fjord and the southwest corner of the country. In other words, by this point in time, the civil war was morphing into a fight about regional hegemony in Norway and not so much about the identity of the actual man on the throne. Anyway, in 1176, the Birkebeiner managed to have Eystein Eysteinsson elected king at the thing in Trøndelag and the region rose in rebellion against Erling Skakke and his son King Magnus. The anti-Magnus feelings may have been strong in Trøndelag, but the rebellion itself was short-lived. It was crushed already in January the following year, Eystein Eysteinsson himself managed to escape the final battle, only to be killed by a local farmer at whose place he tried to seek shelter. But just because their pretender was dead, that didn't mean that the Birkebeiner were ready to call it a day and return to whatever they had been filling their days with before they joined a movement dedicated to overthrowing the government. No. They went ahead and looked for a new candidate for the crown instead. And they didn't have to look very long. In 1177, a man called Sverre arrived in Norway from the Faroe Islands. He claimed that he was the son of Inge the Hunchback's half-brother and co-king. According to Sverre's story, his family had moved to the Faroe Islands, where he had grown up in the house of the local bishop. Just like Sigurd the Loud, Sverre didn't know that he was the son of a king, and instead had gone for a church career. But when his mother disclosed who his real father was, Sverre sailed back to Norway, convinced that a glorious destiny awaited him there. Nowadays, no one believes that Sverre really was the son of a king, and there were a fair number of skeptics already in the 12th century. It didn't help his credibility that Sverre refused to undergo a trial by ordeal to prove his lineage. 
but the Birkebeiner needed a new pretender they could pit against the king, so they accepted Sverre's claim and he became their leader. In a move that flew in the face of Erling Skakke's new law of succession, Sverre was proclaimed king in 1177, but in reality his new status wasn't recognized outside of the Trøndelag region. For years, he and the Birkebeiner conducted a low-intensity guerrilla warfare against Erling Skakke and King Magnus. In the beginning, Sverre and his gang was little more than a band of outlaws living in the wild, but over time, Sverre made sure to get rid of most of the thugs and criminals who had joined the movement, and turned it into something more similar to a professional army. He even recruited foreign mercenaries to fight with the Birkebeiner. There's no doubt that Sverre was a talented military leader, and the Birkebeiner frequently managed to cause harm to the king's troops sent against them. But they weren't strong enough to be able to win over King Magnus's army in an open battle. But sometimes you just need to be lucky. The two sides did meet in an open battle just outside Trondheim on June 18, 1179. 300 Birkebeiner against 500 soldiers in Erling Skakke's and King Magnus's army. Despite being seriously outnumbered, the Birkebeiner won the battle to a large extent thanks to the fact that Erling Skakke was hit by a spear and died. The death of Erling Skakke was a serious loss to King Magnus. He hadn't just lost his father, but also the power behind the throne. It was widely assumed that King Magnus was finished, that he wouldn't be able to cope without his dad telling him what to do. The king retreated to Bergen. The situation was, if not catastrophic, then at least critical. The support for Sverre was growing by the day, and Magnus has lost control over large parts of Norway, including Trøndelag. Sverre seemed poised to take over the whole country. But King Magnus was to prove his critics wrong. Once he stepped out of his dead father's shadow, he turned out to be a half-decent leader in his own right. He continued the war against Sverre more or less with the same result as his father had for several more years. In the early 1180s, some feeble attempts were made to hammer out a compromise, but the talks broke down because Sverre insisted on becoming Magnus's co-king, whereas Magnus would only agree to let Sverre be his vassal. So the war raged on with King Magnus raiding in the Birkebeiner stronghold of Trøndelag and Sverre raiding in eastern Norway, where the king enjoyed widespread popular support. These raids weren't only meant to punish the supporters of the other side, but also to weaken the opponent by robbing him of resources. At least in Sverre's case, the raids were also necessary to support his own troops, since King Magnus controlled Bergen which made it tricky for Sverre to keep up supply lines with Trøndelag since the sea route from Trondheim passed by Bergen. Sverre realized that in order to actually win against King Magnus, he needed to establish control over the sea, and for that he needed a proper fleet. By the spring of 1183, his fleet was ready, and he immediately attacked Bergen, King Magnus' stronghold. The attack was a complete triumph. The Birkebeiner force succeeded in catching the city by surprise, and the entire royal fleet was captured. King Magnus had to flee, and he left Bergen in such a hurry that he didn't even have time to pack his crown and scepter, which both fell in Birkebeiner hands. King Magnus spent the rest of the year and the winter in Denmark, licking his wounds and gathering a new fleet. As soon as the weather conditions allowed it, in 1184, he set out to reclaim Norway. When Magnus reached Bergen in early summer, Sverre was away, putting down an uprising in the Sognefjord area, north of the city. Apparently, he hadn't expected Magnus to show up so soon, because Bergen was only defended by a small contingent of Birkebeiner, 
and they were driven off with relative ease. Instead of fortifying the city and waiting for Sverre's return, Magnus decided to pursue his opponent and set off northward. The two fleets met deep inside the Sognefjord on June 15th in what turned out to be the last of the many battles between Magnus and Sverre. Sverre had set out to put down a peasant revolt, not to fight against the main force of Magnus's army, so he had only brought some 1,000 men and 14 ships. Magnus, on the other hand, had no fewer than 26 ships and at least 2,000 men. But even though he was outnumbered 2 to 1, Sverre didn't lose his cool. He ordered his ships to concentrate their attacks on outliers in Magnus's fleet, overpowering these ships one by one. This strategy worked, and as Magnus was starting to lose ships, his soldiers started to panic. They tried to save themselves by climbing onto ships that weren't under attack yet, and by doing so they overloaded them, causing them to sink without being under direct attack. Many of the soldiers drowned, and King Magnus also went down with his ship. Leaderless, Magnus's surviving forces were scattered. Sverre and the Birkebeiner had won the war. So Sverre had now gone from being an unhappy priest on an isolated island in the North Atlantic to being the king of Norway. But even though he was the king of the Birkebeiner, which supposedly was the party of the poor and the downtrodden, Sverre ran the country pretty much in the same way as his predecessor had done. He didn't propose to redistribute land to the landless or alleviate the suffering of the poor. He focused on shifting the regional balance of power back to Trøndelag from other regions that have gained in importance over the last decades. Sverre also tried to win legitimacy among the old elite by marrying off his closest associates with daughters from established noble families. To make these deals more palatable for the bride's parents, he'd given the new husbands key roles in the management of Norway. Sverre himself followed the expected pattern and married a foreign princess. But even though Sverre did what he could to act conciliatory and to heal the rifts of the civil war, it wasn't enough to just play matchmaker. Many, if not all of the old Norwegian noble families, had suffered losses during the long war against the Birkebeiner, both in terms of land and property and dead sons, fathers and brothers. Members of the old elite also resented the elevation of so many parvenus to the status of nobility under King Sverre. They thought it was beneath their dignity to treat these former nobodies as their social equals now. In other words, the peace was not to last. Not that there was ever much of a peace. Almost immediately after Sverre's ascension to power, various rebellions broke out. Most of them weren't well planned or well organized, and so they could be crushed with relative ease. But some posed a more serious threat to the new regime. In 1193, a group under the leadership of the dead Magnus Erlingsson's brother-in-law put forward a new pretender to the throne, a young boy they claimed was the illegitimate son of King Magnus Erlingsson. This group organized in the Orkney Islands, so they managed to gather considerable strength before they actually showed up in Norway to raise the flag of revolt against King Sverre. Because of their origin in the Orkney Islands and their facial hair, they were called the Island Beards. These island beards first attacked Viken, the region around the Oslo Fjord. The Birkebeiner had never been particularly popular here, so the rebels could take control of southeastern Norway without much fighting. From there, they sailed on to Bergen, on the west coast. They managed to take the city itself and the surrounding region, 
but the castle held out, defended by a Birkebeiner garrison loyal to King Sverre. The following spring, the king himself launched his counterattack. He and his fleet sailed south from Trendelag to recapture Bergen from the island beards, and then to evict them from Norway completely. The two sides met in a naval battle in the inner archipelago of Bergen, in a bay called Florvog, just across from the city harbour. King Sverre commanded a fleet of 20 ships, whereas the island beards only had 14. But even though they had fewer ships, theirs were considerably larger, so both sides brought approximately 2,000 men each to the battle. When they learned that King Sverre was on his way, the island beards sailed their fleet across the city fjord and hid in the Florvog Bay on April 2nd. The plan was to attack the king's fleet from behind as it approached Bergen. But when Sverre arrived that same evening, he heard about the plan to spring a surprise attack in his back, so he decided to out-surprise the island beards with a pre-dawn attack on their fleet cooped up in the narrow Florvog Bay. The following day, April 3rd, 1194, happened to be Palm Sunday. It was still dark when the Birkebeiner, under the leadership of King Sverre, sailed into the bay where the island beards were hiding. They were taken completely by surprise and didn't realize they were under attack before the Birkebeiner ships actually crashed into them. Still, the island beards soon got their act together and counterattacked. They even managed to attack King Sverre's own ship, capturing the royal banner. Both sides suffered heavy losses, but after a while, the Birkebeiner fleet initiated a retreat. The island beards tried to pursue them, but then the Birkebeiner attacked again, not least thanks to a small reinforcement of a hundred fresh men who had set out from the castle in Bergen when they realized that there was a battle going on in the fjord off the city. That decisively tipped the scale in favor of the Birkebeiner and King Sverre. In the end, only two of the Island Beard ships managed to escape. Almost all the Island Beards fell that day, including the whole leadership and their pretender. Even though they'd won the battle, the Birkebeiner also suffered heavy losses. Approximately half of their men had also fallen, making the Battle of Florvog one of the deadliest naval battles in the history of Norwegian naval battles. But King Sverre survived, and he probably thought that the loss of half of his fleet was a sacrifice he was willing to accept, because after Florvog, Sverre was at the height of his power, and no one was left to challenge his rule over Norway. To celebrate, Sverre had himself a proper coronation, so that the people would know that he was indeed the legitimate king of Norway, confirmed by God himself through his ecclesiastical representatives on earth. So on June 29th, 1194, Sverre was crowned in an elaborate ceremony in Bergen. He made sure all Norwegian bishops were there to confer the church's blessing on his reign. And all the bishops did come to participate in the coronation, all except one. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is what they call foreshadowing. You see, from the church's perspective, it was far from unproblematic to crown Sverre. It wasn't just the fact that this errant former priest had won his position as king by waging an war against Magnus Erlingsson, who had been properly crowned and therefore the only legitimate king in the eyes of the church, even though that obviously didn't help his case. An even bigger obstacle was the fact that Sverre had spent his years as king trying to roll back various ecclesiastical privileges in Norway, threatening the church's power and income. In 1190, the archbishop had even had to flee Norway and seek refuge with the Danish archbishop in Lund. So King Sverre got his fancy coronation with all the bishops, except one, 
But that didn't change the fact that he was still seen as an illegitimate ruler in the eyes of the church. On the contrary, the ceremony actually triggered renewed struggle against his rule. In the spring of 1196, the opposition against King Sverre coalesced into a party called the Bagler, which means the Croziers or the Bishop Staffs. It was formed in exile in Scania, then part of Denmark. If their opponents, the Birkebeiner, were supposed to be the party of the regular people, if not the poor, then the Bagler represented the elites of Norway. The Bagler leadership included a couple of noblemen and the Bishop of Oslo, the one who had refused to participate in King Sverre's illegal coronation. The Norwegian Archbishop also lent his support and legitimacy to the Bagler party. Even though the struggle between the Birkebeiner and the Bagler is sometimes portrayed as a fight between the people and the nobility, it's probably better to see it as a struggle between elites in different parts of Norway, fighting for power and influence over an increasingly centralized kingdom. The Birkebeiner guarded the interests of the Trøndelag region, historically a very powerful region during the Viking Age, whereas the Bagler represented the southeast and the southwest, two regions that were flourishing now and threatening the traditional role of Trøndelag. The Bagler chose another supposed son of King Magnus Erlingsson as their pretender to the throne, and equipped a fleet that would sail to Norway and restart the civil war. More or less by coincidence, King Sverre happened to be in the Oslo Fjord area when the Bagler fleet arrived. The two sides didn't actually fight any major battle, but one of Sverre's sons managed to make a mess of the defences, and the Boglers managed to chase away Sverre's army. Sverre had to retreat to the safety of Trøndelag and spent the winter in Trondheim. The Boglers had their pretender proclaimed king at the thing and established themselves in Oslo, in the southeast, where they had strong general support. Now the Glaus were off, as far as Sverre was concerned. The Bagler threat was greater than he originally estimated, so in the spring of 1197 he mustered the Leidung, that is the free men in the general population who were able to fight. He managed to scrape together some 7,000 men from the northern and western parts of the country. That's an enormous army compared to the forces we've seen so far in the Norwegian Civil War, but on the other hand it consisted mostly of fresh recruits or at best part-time soldiers, not exactly battle-hardened veterans. The new Birkebeiner army attacked Oslo on July 26th. Heavy fighting ensued and there were many casualties on both sides, but ultimately Sverre and the Birkebeiner had to retreat inland. Sverre took this opportunity to extract money from this part of the country, a region that currently was paying taxes to the Bagler pretender in Oslo. But he couldn't stay long because his army started to show its lack of professionalism and demanded to go home. So Sverre had no choice but to withdraw to Bergen and decided to spend the winter there. Meanwhile, the Bagler army had crossed Norway over land and arrived unexpectedly in Trøndelag. The city of Trondheim fell after almost no resistance, with the exception of the castle. It remained in Birkebeiner hands for some time and might have been able to hold on longer, but the commander switched sides and joined the Bagler uprising. As soon as they took control of the castle, they tore it down, effectively rendering Sverre's home base defenseless. At this point, things didn't look too good for the Birkebeiner, but Sverre wasn't ready to give up. When the campaign season got underway, he set out with his army to recapture Trondheim from the Bagler occupiers. But in the decisive naval battle, the Birkebeiner fleet was annihilated. The ramifications of the defeat were more serious than just the loss of the fleet. More and more nobles and other powerful Norwegians took this to mean that Sverre and the Birkebeiner 
were a spent force, and they joined the Bagler camp to make sure that they'd be on the winning side when the war ended, which almost everyone assumed would happen very soon. Once again, Sverre retreated to Bergen with what was left of his once mighty army. The Bagler smelt blood in the water and chased after him to finish him off. The city and the surrounding area fell to the Bagler forces, but Sverre and the Birkebeiner managed to hold on in the castle. The Boglers weren't able to take it by storm, so they put it under siege. That still didn't help, and by August 11th, their patience was up. They set fire to Bergen and burned the city to the ground. At this point, Sverre saw little reason to remain, so he and a large party of the Birkebeiner force that had held the castle put out to sea and sailed up to Trøndelag. Despite the fact that the Bogler had been able to capture the region, the Birkebeiner still enjoyed a lot of popular support there, and when the king returned, many of those who had joined the Bogler camp, when it seemed politically opportune to do so, now switched sides again. The Birkebeiner set to work over the winter, putting together a brand new fleet, double quick. When the Bogler fleet showed up to take back Trondheim the following summer, the Birkebeiner had managed to build eight new ships. They had also taken a bunch of civilian boats and refurbished them, turning them into warships. The two fleets met in a battle in the Trondheim Fjord on June 18, 1199. Now Sverre's luck finally turned, and the Birkebeiner triumphed over the Bogler fleet. The victory was definitive, and the surviving Bogler soldiers fled for their lives. The Birkebeiner continued their offensive and were able to regain control over all of Norway for the first time in a very long time. Many prominent Bogler fled to Denmark to avoid King Sverre's reprisals. Sverre spent that winter in Oslo, but even though he had chased away the Bogler, they still controlled the hearts and minds of the population in southeastern Norway. Resentment against the Birkebeiner simmered throughout the winter, and in early spring it boiled over. The locals rose up against King Sverre, and a large force descended on Oslo to drive him off. But even though this peasant force may have been impressive in size, it wasn't really a proper army. The Birkebeiner defeated the peasants with relative ease, but the whole affair made Sverre realize exactly how unpopular he actually was in the region, so he decided it would be best to withdraw to the west coast after all. As soon as the Birkebeiner had left, the Bogler returned from their Danish exile. They were greeted enthusiastically by the locals, and the whole region was soon back in Bogler hands. The two sides then spent the rest of that year and the next campaigning and pillaging in each other's territories, but no battle of interest or importance took place. It was on a return journey from such a campaign of pillaging in the Oslo Fjord that King Sverre fell ill. He managed to make it back to the rebuilt Bergen, but by then the king was clearly dying. On his deathbed, he appointed his only surviving son, Håkon, as his successor. This was a dodgy move since Håkon wasn't born within wedlock, so according to the law he wasn't entitled to inherit the crown. But the Birkebeiner of course still recognized Håkon as their new king when Sverre finally died on March 9, 1202. Håkon continued the war against the Bogler, but his reign was short. He fell ill during Christmas 1203 and died on New Year's Day 1204. People at court suspected that he had been poisoned, and more specifically, poisoned by his stepmother, the Dowager Queen. She and Håkon had had a strained relationship. She had wanted to return to her native Sweden when the Sverre died, but Håkon had refused, more or less keeping her prisoner at court. To prove her innocence of regicide, she arranged for one of the men in her retinue to undergo a trial by ordeal on her behalf. 
Unfortunately for the Dowager Queen, and for the guy who was appointed to undergo the trial, he was badly burnt, thus proving her guilt in the eyes of the people. But she escaped punishment since she managed to slip away and flee to Sweden. Since Håkon hadn't been married and didn't have any known sons, his four-year-old nephew Guttorm, one of Sverre's grandsons, became the new Birkebeiner king. His uncle, called Håkon the Crazy, was made a Jarl and regent during the new king's minority. But the reign of King Guttorm would prove to be even shorter than that of his uncle's. He died already in August the same year, further deepening the chaos. By now, the Birkebeiner position was unravelling. At the same time, the new Bogler pretender, yet another alleged son of Magnus Erlingsson, was backed by Denmark. The Danish king was throwing money and soldiers at the Bogler party, expecting a triumphant Bogler king to honour Erling Skakke's old promise to hand over the Oslofjord region to Denmark. The Birkebeiner needed a candidate for the throne, and they needed to find one quickly. They decided to put forward Jarl Håkon the Crazy. It's true that he didn't have the correct qualifications in terms of direct bloodline, but after all, he was already running the country. But the Archbishop of Norway, who resided in Trondheim, as well as the local population in Trøndelag, preferred Jarl Håkon's younger half-brother, Inge, possibly because he was less crazy than his older brother. The Birkebeiner avoided fighting among themselves by reaching a compromise. Inge was to be king, but Jarl Håkon the Crazy was given command over the army. In addition, he would get half of the royal income, so arguably he was more powerful and more of a king than the actual king. But the arrangement worked, and for the next few years, King Inge and Jarl Håkon fought the Bagler, who still controlled southeastern Norway. The Bagler pretender, Magnus Erlingsson's son, died already in 1206, but the Bagler, of course, found someone new to lead them, a guy called Philip Simonsson. In the end, it was the Archbishop in Trondheim and the Bishop in Oslo who put an end to the fighting between the two sides. The two clerics convinced Inge and Håkon the Crazy to meet with Philip in the fall of 1208. At that meeting, the two sides agreed to compromise that was meant to end this disastrous civil war that had gone on for far too long already. The Bogler pretender Philip agreed to give up his claims to be king, and in return he would keep control over southeastern Norway. He would be the region's Jarl and formerly a vassal of King Inge. Jarl Håkon the Crazy was given Western Norway, centred on Bergen, and Inge would remain king, the only king. King Inge would be based in Trondheim and have direct control over Trøndelag. As was so often the case, a royal bride was offered to seal the deal, and Philip married Inge's cousin, Christina, who was King Sverre's daughter. The deal did bring peace to Norway for the first time in many years, but Philip didn't honour his end of the bargain and continued to call himself king. Inge chose to ignore this violation of the peace agreement, maybe because he didn't think it was that important, or, more likely, because he realised that he would be unable to defeat Philip, and the only thing he would achieve by trying would be to restart the civil war. So on the one hand, Inge had managed to put an end to a civil war that had plagued Norway for generations. But on the other, he had done so by dividing up the country. The Kingdom of Norway, unified by Harald Fairhair some 350 years before, had effectively ceased to exist. It was now two kingdoms, a Bogler kingdom in the southeast and a Birkebeiner kingdom in the west. Would the country remain permanently divided? Was that the price for peace? Would this be the end of Norway? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned 
to find out in a future episode. But not the next episode. While we've been busy following events in Norway, the situation back in Denmark has stabilized to the extent that the Danish king even has started to entertain dreams of expansion. We've already seen hints of this in Danish support for Erling Skakke and the Bagler party in hopes of gaining control over parts of Norway. Next time, we'll have a closer look at what was going on over there. Before we wrap up today, I have some exciting news. I'm happy to announce that I've launched the first Scandinavian History Podcast NFT collection. It's waiting for you on OpenSea.io. Just look for the collection named Odin's Life Hacks. There's also a link attached on Facebook and Twitter. In order to get the collection started, there are free NFTs up for grabs for the first friends of the show. As always, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can now rate podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian History-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get a t-shirt, a mug, a tote bag, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life, Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or Speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S H. A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.